0: Welcome to Tell Me More Live, the recorded version of our live storytelling night at the Push Comedy Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. In this recording, Rafael Henriquez shares the struggle of dealing with luck. My story about luck starts in 2001 um, in November. Um, I was uh, attending William & Mary Um, But at that time, uh, one of my good friends was murdered and my other best friend who was also with him at the time was in the hospital. So I took two weeks off of class um, to take care of my best friend. Um, And I didn't think anything of it because I was smart enough to get into William & Mary. How big of a deal can it be? Um, And uh, found out the hard way that when you're pre-med at William & Mary, um, you end up becoming a comedian. Um, no, but so I missed a lot of classes, um, and it was hard for me to catch up. Uh, at the same time, the first love of my life uh, had uh, broken up with me uh, for the second time. Uh, we dated from eighth grade to about tenth grade, and then again, um, she asked me out to prom our senior year, and we dated for a, uh, for a couple months. So, you know, I was just I, I was hating life and I wanted something different, and um, I had also lost my, uh, my track scholarship. I was a pole vaulter, um, and so I was hating life, and I wanted something different. And I didn't have any college money. I, didn't, I don't come from money. Um, you know, I didn't even live on campus because I grew up in Newport News, and it was only a 10-minute drive. and. and I'm the only boy in my family, the X chromosome runs very deep. Uh, I have three sisters, 30 aunts, um, 60 female cousins, two boy cousins, Uh, I also have two daughters. Um, So if any of you ladies that are single, or maybe married, want a daughter. Um, But uh, seriously, um, so I was, uh, my father died when I was 12. And I'm very much a mama's boy, and when you grow up Latino, uh, you become the man in the house when the man leaves. Well, you know, and um, so uh, with all this going on, the storm, I had a very uh, at that time conflicting relationship with my mother, and I just decided uh, why well, I didn't decide. I was chasing after this other girl who at the time had enlisted into the army, and every. Bad decision that I've ever made in my life is because of a girl. Uh, even though I was raised by women, I didn't learn, and I, I'm still stupid. Um, so I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna enlist in the army too." That sounds like a great plan, even though that's something that my father never wanted me to do. My my father lived through Vietnam. Uh, my grandfather, who was a retired colonel in the Venezuelan army, um, he. It implored me not to not to join uh, the military, uh, but i I was going after this girl, so I was like, i'm going to join the army and i'm you know i'm going to do a reservist, so don't worry i don't i don't have to worry about nothing because i'm going to just do uh, one uh one week in a month, two weeks in the summer if any and this mind you this is two months after nine eleven so Um, We were already bombing the shit out of Afghanistan. Now we're talking about going to Iraq. And um, if anything really, if I get activated, I'm just going to go to Fort Eustis or or Fort Story. And they're going to send the real soldiers who do this every day. It's come to find out it's cheaper to send reservists um, when you activate them. Um, So I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm I'm a recruiter's dream. So he was talking college money, 85% tuition, um, VA loan and grants. And I'm like, yeah, 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 money, 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 money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they asked me, well, what do you want to be? You score very high on your ASVAP on the military test. And I said, uh, well, what's the shortest um, training? Because I do want to um, get back into uh, college after I'm, done, you know, after I'm done with training. And it was either to be a cook or a truck driver. And... Um, well, I was, you know, cooking's not my—I th- mean, I love cooking, but I don't want to be a cook. I'm—I'm I'm, going to be a truck driver. Um, so, in uh, 2002, January 2002, I—I'm I, on my way to Fort Jackson, uh, South Carolina, and to basic training. Excel at that. Go to advanced training in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Advance at, uh, do great there. And all right, now time to get back into college and. Um, so I'm doing the college thing again um, in the fall of 2002, and uh, I get the call uh, a week before um, Christmas that I'm getting activated. I'm like, oh, cool, yeah. I live right next to Fort Eustis so that's cool. Um, whatever, yeah. They're like, no, 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 you're going to Iraq. And I'm like, that doesn't, <laughs> what? That, that doesn't make any sense, because I don't know anything about the Army. you know no man whatever but uh, no yeah Uh, I went to Iraq um, and the way we prepared for that uh, was in the winter of 2002-2003 in New Jersey Fort Dix New Jersey during that big snowstorm um, where the snow was up to here and that's how we prepared to go to the desert Uh, it's the the army way Um, so Fast forward, uh, and I remember, uh, let me back, uh, back up a little bit. Even though um, you know, I was having a conflicting relationship with my mother at the time, uh, I remember we were having a shouting match about something, and then I dropped the bomb on her. That was a bad pun, no pun intended on that. Um, I dropped the bomb on her that I, was, uh, that I had joined the Army, and I just remember her stop, like she was screaming at me at the time and she stopped and she had the the look of dread on her face and you know but I was already you know I'm very I'm a Leo, I'm a Latin male, I'm, I'm hot-blooded so I'm like fuck it I'm gonna just drive, dive the knife in I don't care if she looks dreaded I'm this is what I'm doing because I'm a man you know I'm 18 at the time I, I can do whatever the fuck I want Uncle Sam said so and so um, she had that look of dread and she stopped screaming and she, she just got quiet. And she, I remember her, we were fighting in the kitchen, and I just remember her just walking away. And the only thing she said was, why? And, you know, I remember I'm, I'm pissed off, um, hot blooded, and, you know, I think I'm in love again or whatever. Um, and I hate the world, you know, because all the bad shit that's happened. So, anyway, fast forward to 2003. Um, we get. Uh, I'm stationed out of Fort Story, Virginia Beach. We get uh, involuntarily transferred to this unit uh, out of Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, and so, if you're familiar with this area, you know it's very urban. So most of us are blacks or Latinos. Um, Reading, Pennsylvania, is a couple miles, maybe several, several miles away from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, which I hear has a big uh, KKK. Um, population and uh, so we're with a bunch of uh, corn-fed white boys and um, when we walk up when we join units uh, you know is very it, it was very segregated uh, so it was already a, a, a bad match and um, I remember we had a very uh, uh, fucked up command because they they were just so uh, so they just wanted to get promoted and they were you know wanting to um, get their, their, what we call it, they, they were brass hungry. They, they wanted that next promotion, the officers. Uh, so anytime, they were a bunch of yes men. So anytime there was a mission or something, they, they were like, yeah, we'll do it, yeah, we'll do it. And ever since from the beginning of that, every time we showed up somewhere, the, wherever, we were, wherever we showed up, they were like, who are you and why are you here? Um, but they were yes men. So you had to go with it, um, so we ended up going to uh, Iraq um, in February or March of 2003, right before the fall of Baghdad. That, if you all remember that, the big fall pulling down the Saddam st- statue. I was there before that, and during that, and after that, um, and the whole time we were like, oh, okay, well, you know, last Iraq war lasted what three months all right we'll be done in three months whatever we'll be home in six months we'll be home in nine months uh ended up being there for almost a year and a half um so it it was a horrible experience uh for me because um you know we're mixed with these uh i don't want to yeah yeah they're racist um, so we're with these racists, um, and it was the first time I've ever been called a spick, considering the fact that I don't look like Ricky Ricardo, or, or Cheech, you know, so, um, it was a t- terrible experience, and at the time, I was also uh, dating a, a, a different girl, and, um, I'd call home every day, I'd call her mo- more than I'd call my mom, uh, or my sisters, and, you know, I ended up finding out uh, that she had cheated on me while I was over there, so, uh, Again, once again, I hate life. I'm in Iraq. I can't escape. I got to look at the same ugly motherfuckers every day. Uh, I'm fighting, fighting a war that I don't believe in. Um, and I don't even believe in violence. So I, it was completely stupid for me to be there. Um, let's fast forward a little bit more to um, Christmas Eve, 2003. Um, in a lot of uh, Hispanic families, Christmas Eve is bigger than the actual Christmas Day. That's where we do the the gift giving, the the meals, um, the the whole shebang. And you know, if Christmas Eve happened to fall on um, on a work day, you know, my my parents, my uncles, everybody took the day off because we were going to celebrate uh, Christmas Eve. Um, this Christmas Eve, uh, I remember waking up around 6:30 in the morning. Uh, because my platoon sergeant had said that we had to go on a mission and we were all pissed off because it's like Christmas Eve no one else is working no one else has to do a mission or a convoy or anything, it's like why do we have to why do you guys keep saying yes but like I said they were brass hungry so we had to do it and uh, everybody was pissed off, we only had 30 minutes to prepare our our trucks, Um, I drove a PLS Uh, which is a palletized loading system it's a heavy-duty truck and um, it's uh, a 10-wheel truck. These wheels are about 300 pounds uh, each and so uh, we load up our trucks and we start our mission and everybody's just in a bad mood. You know it's Christmas Eve nobody wants to work we've been there for you know almost a year Um, Many of us hadn't had the the R&R to go uh, two weeks to go back home to see our families. Um, We're just pissed off. And you know, when we started doing the convoy, we're noticing not only is there no, there's no other company um, doing missions, but even the locals aren't out on Christmas Eve. And this is a Muslim country. Uh, I'm not sure of, of the holidays for Muslims around Christmas time. Uh, but, I mean, there was nobody on the road. So uh, that makes us even angrier. And um, I remember about, now uh, we, we, would, we were going to uh, Bakuba, which is about um, two hours south from where I was stationed. Uh, I was stationed in Tikrit, um, which is three hours north of, of Baghdad. And um, so it would, all in all, it's a five hour round trip. Um, uh, two hours to get there, an hour to drop the load, and two hours to get back, and so we were, we just wanted just to go back, home. This is what we're calling it, home. We wanted to go back to camp, um, and just be done with the day. Um, you know, I was excited to to come back and see what mail call I had, see you know if my family had sent me any goodies for Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, uh, my mom did end up sending me some brandy, so that was pretty cool. Um, but I didn't get it till almost New Year's Eve. Uh, but anyway, um, and for, for me, it was very cold. Uh, spending almost a year in Iraq, um, the temperatures were 100 degrees plus every day. So even though it was 65, um, or maybe 70 in December in Iraq, it, was, it still felt freezing. Uh, and I, we couldn't have, we had the heat on in the truck But we had to have the windows down so we can aim our. We're always aiming our M16s out the window in case of an an attack or anything. So, anyways, uh, an hour and a half into the trip, um, I start. I'm riding passenger, um, and I start hearing this this knocking. um, And I look out the window or I look in the rear view to see if I can see anything, and I, I don't. I don't. I can't see anything, but it's just getting louder and louder and louder. And then I asked uh, my, my driver, you know, if the system's picking up any maintenance issues. And, yeah, we had a, we had a flat. So we're like, fuck. Now, we have, now we're doing a trip. On, we're doing a mission on Christmas Eve. It's fucking cold. And now we got to deal with this. And, again, these are 300-pound tires. So it would take, for just two to four people, it would take about half an hour to 45 minutes to change one tire. And so I was like, this this is the worst day of my life this is the worst thing that could ever happen you know i'm having bad luck and uh but we pull over we we radio in to the uh to the convoy sergeant about you know what's going on um and you know we pull off the road uh, or on the side of the road and we all start uh everybody in the convoy which is about 30 people um we Some pull perimeter, but a lot of people uh, come and help us with to change our tire because everybody's pissed off. So everybody just wants it to be done. And it only took us about maybe 10, 15 minutes to change the tire, which, you know, at that time, or looking back at it, it was a beautiful thing that, you know, these two separate units that were segregated um, came together just to, you know, I don't know, I guess you want to call it a Christmas miracle. but I remember my uh, my uh, platoon sergeant pulling me over, and uh, well, not pulling me, pulling me to the side, and and we're taking a look at the tire, this 300-pound tire, and he's like, "Look at that shit!" And it, there's a hole the size of a half dollar in the tire, um, and it, it doesn't look like a bullet hole or like we were shot at or anything. It just looks like. Maybe the Incredible Hulk came and, like, took a screwdriver and just punched a hole in it. I mean, there was no, no debris or bullet or anything. And, you know, again, these are 300-pound tires, so it can't just be a regular nail that's in the, in the highway that, that's going to flatten this tire. And I'm just thinking, like, huh? Oh, oh, okay. At that time, we see um, three Humvees pass us. And I'm like, oh, but at least we're not the only assholes working. I'm like, that's cool. That gives me a little bit of hope, but not really. Um, and protocol has it that when, if your uh, vehicle has any issues, you automatically have to move up in the line. You would be number two in the line of the convoy. The first, uh, the first truck obviously being the gunner truck for protection reasons. Um, so we, we were probably 17th in line in the convoy. Uh, and then we moved up to uh, the second truck. And so we start the mission again still kind of upset but you know whatever, what can you do? And um, I remember we were pulling up to this uh, village or town or city, whatever they call it, called Samara, which we had dubbed as the the dead zone because that's where a lot of uh, IED attacks, a lot of ambushes would take place. Um, But it had been a couple of weeks, maybe months without any kind of attack, um, at least on on our company. with any kind of attack, so we got complacent, plus we were already in our heads because we're working on Christmas Eve, you know? And um, while we're pulling up, or we're getting close to Samara, and I see this black plume of, cloud, this black smoke coming up. And even though I knew it was a dead zone, I didn't think anything of it because there's nobody on the road, there's no locals, you know, nobody's here. Um, and on top of the fact they do a lot of slash and burn, uh, farming, um, over there. So I'm thinking, uh, it's just a farmer, you know, burning his crops or whatever. And about 10 minutes, we finally get to that area where there's the black smoke. And I just, I remember the gunner truck slamming on his brakes and, um, going into, uh, the combat position, which is turning the vehicle at like a 45, uh, degree angle, um, to kind of like set up like a like a barrier, and you know, so the rest of the trucks in the convoy, you know, is protocol to, to do a stagger position on the road. Everybody gets out, and you know, we have take the safety off our M16s, and um, we're looking, you know, what happened? Why why did we stop? And so I'm walking up to the gunner truck, and I remember this female uh, officer. She was a lieutenant, a second lieutenant. Um, which is the bottom of the totem pole for officers, um, just running hysterically up to us, and she, she's she's completely white in the face. I mean, well, she was white, but I mean, she was. <laughs> but she was also uh, she was she was like a ghost, and she's screaming at the top of her lungs, like, "We need help! We need help! We need help! Please!" And um, I just. Uh, you know, in the movies, it's cliche, but in the war movies or, you know, any kind of action movie where there's about to be some, some bad shit happening and um, everything goes into slow motion, the sound escapes and it's just completely silent. That's what happened to me. As cliche as that sounds, that's what happened to me. I just kind of, I wouldn't even say an out-of-body experience. It was just, I didn't know who I was or what I was doing, but the look on her face um, kind of prepared me. Well, not really, but I knew it wasn't good. And um, I, there was, I just remembered there was smoke everywhere. There was, there was a, a, a lot of dust or sand everywhere. And uh, I'm, me and, and, and uh, the guy I was driving with uh, were walking behind her. A couple of uh, other of uh, my soldier buddies were walking with her you know, we're following her trying to see what does she need help with? Like, what, did she get a flat tire too? Uh, yeah, we, we just did that. Um, so, but I'm walking slow motion, and then I just remember this indescribable smell. Um, I, I can't even begin to think of what I could relate this smell to, but it, something was burning. And I'm, I'm walking behind this lieutenant as she's running towards the Humvees. And the humvees that we had, the three humvees that we had seen earlier, and one of the humvees, half of it was just completely gone. There was, I mean, tire rubber all over the place, metal, everything just all over the place. You know, people's personal stuff that they might have had in the humvee just all over the road, and it, nothing was registering to me. And um I. Um, uh, I, um, I remember walking up to that Humvee, and there was a an, another officer, um, and I know he was his office, uh, an officer because I I recognized the rank. And I just, again, in slow motion, and uh, and I can't hear anything. I'm walking up to him, and he's riddled with holes. There's there's blood coming out ev- everywhere. It, it just it was surreal. And uh, I wasn't medically trained or anything, but I knew I had to do something. And I'm walking up to him, and the lieutenant, she says, no, not him, not him. And again, this, is, this isn't making sense to me. I'm like, this guy is bleeding everywhere. What do you mean, not him? So anyways, I'm, I, I'm following her, because maybe she knows something that I don't. And then the, the other two Humvees are completely unrecognizable. They're, I mean, they're riddled with bullets, also, or or whatever the explosive was. Um, there's parts everywhere. There's stains of blood. There's pieces of uniforms everywhere. Um, and uh, to go back a little bit, that smell that I was smelling was burning flesh. Um, so uh, remember, also, um, I'm following her to the second Humvee, or what's left of it, and getting to the driver's side, and the uh, the sergeant that was driving the Humvee, um, he was literally inside out. Uh, you, you see horror movies all the time, and you know and they have the intestines. That that was that guy, and I'm I again in slow motion because I can't make sense of this. Put my, my rifle down and I just put my hands on his insides and just holding it there. And you know, this isn't making sense to me. I'm, I'm not even pissed off anymore, I'm numb. I don't understand what I'm doing. Um, so eventually, um, about hour, hour and a half later, we're able to get medevac, um, helicopters there to take, take the people uh, to get help, t- to get the medical attention. And um, we just got to get back in our trucks and finish our mission. We ended up finishing our mission and everybody was just silent. Then nobody was angry anymore. Everybody was just like I was, just silent, numb. Trying to make sense of what we just went through, and uh, we get back to camp. We finish the mission, and we uh, we have the uh, the, the uh, debrief, and we find out that um, the two guys I saw they didn't make it. There was only five people in the convoy; those those two people didn't make it. And um, I remember that the only thing I wanted to do that day was. Even before I had experience, that was just to call home, call my mom, you know, say Merry Christmas and tell her how pissed off I was. And um, I, didn't, I didn't end up doing that because I knew that there was two other mothers out there that were never gonna get that call ever again. So I didn't feel right doing that. I, um, again, I was, call, I was calling home every other day and um, I didn't call home again till maybe two weeks after New Year's, which you I find out I'm an asshole for that because my mom would later tell me that she, uh, my mom's a hard sleeper, um, but she would tell me that at night um, she would wake up every time a car passed the house because she feared that it was gonna be the Red Cross or somebody coming to tell her that I was dead and um, that, that made me feel shitty that, you know, I didn't call home. Um, so I'm just going to end it here and just say it, it, it might be. Um, it's definitely survivor's guilt. But I, I feel really disrespectful now having to tell this story. And I've only told this story in the last 14 years. I've only told it. Five times. This is the first time I'm telling it sober. Um, I feel really disrespectful saying that my luck costed two other people's theirs. Thank you. If you'd like to come out and tell a story like this one, or just enjoy the show, visit tellmemorelive.org. That's TellMeMoreLive.org, where you'll find a list of upcoming shows, submission forms, and more storyteller podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to Tell Me More Live.